Happy birthday, America. It's just after midnight, the 4th of July, 2022. America is 246 years young. And you are listening to the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Just 127 days until our critical midterm elections. And you are here at the home of misinformation, disinformation, also known as the truth. Paul, it's the 4th of July. What do you got planned? We got a fun time uh, planned at the uh, Runyon household. It's a, uh, you know how we make no mistake that we're in the Carolinas. And I don't know how many people have lived on the East Coast and and tried to do some fireworks. But South Carolina is one of those few places where you can go and pretty much buy any kind of fireworks that you want. So uh, we made a, uh, a run for the border. Do you know what I'm talking about there, Connor? Have you have you ever seen ads for South of the Border on Interstate 95? I know you're kind of a West Coaster, but this is kind of a big thing on the East Coast. Well, in my military time, I did get to South of the Border, and that's where I actually purchased my McLovin driver's license one time. Yeah, I know there's a lot of fireworks standing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got you, you South Carolina is kind of the the epicenter for fireworks on the East Coast. So so we made a run down there, got some good stuff and uh getting ready for some uh, some family fun in a safe a safe manner, but but it's going to be exciting. I, I love the bottle rockets. I love trying getting those things. I mean, it's just the fact that some of these states regulate these fireworks to the point where it's like maybe you can buy a sparkler is, is ridiculous to me. It's let parents have fun with their kids. I'm uh, in a state in the American West, and uh, the fireworks stands started going out a couple weeks ago. And, you know, they've been firing off sporadically the last few days, but tonight, in some parts of where we are, it's going to look like Fallujah. The very patriotic people out here. Well, Fallujah in a good way. In a, in a good way. No one will die, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hopefully there's no... Um, wasn't there like a, a football player that blew off a couple fingers one time with a firework? Yeah, I remember that. I mean, it happens every year where people get injured, but you just got to gotta take precautions. It's like light the fuse, get away. Don't be trying to like launch bottle rockets from your hand or something, you know, out of your hand. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Jason was, he played for the New York giants, Jason Pierre Paul. Yes. A big time defensive lineman and actually, you know, blew off a couple fingers. His right index finger had to be amputated because he held on to the firework too long. So everybody, please be careful. We should say that drink a lot of water, use sunscreen, but especially with those fireworks, be careful. And, and I wouldn't, my kids aren't really allowed to light them. It's, it's only my, you know, that's my responsibility. It is. As far as the Coughlin's, we kind of don't know what we're going to do. I, I can tell you that the flag will be flown. The colors will be shown. You know, we're going to do some grilling and, you know, Toby Keith, Trace Adkins and Bryson Gray songs will be played. But beyond that, I really don't know, but it's just a time to spend with the family and, and reflect on how lucky we all are to be Americans. We certainly are. It's one of these holidays where it's not just a long weekend. I mean, we have to think about the actual importance of Independence Day. I mean, people don't even think about now how this happened. I don't think people have read the Declaration of Independence. I think most folks, if you ask, don't even know what led to this and why we declared independence when we did. But 
this is a huge holiday, if not the biggest holiday that we celebrate every year. Yeah, let's get into that. I, I you know, I know this is a a critical time in our nation's history because a lot of our institutions are fraying and they're under attack from the Supreme Court to our fourth estate, the news media, our universities are poisoned right now. So people are losing faith. They're losing faith, Paul, in, in America. And, you know, you see the waves of immigrants pouring in. I think that's proof that we still are the shining city on the hill. I think there's different ways to, to bring in immigrants. But America is the greatest country on earth. We should all be proud of that. I know I am. But let's get into, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about how America came to be, what the world was like in the mid to late 18th century, and uh, we'll go through it just so everybody kind of, I know, you know, some people don't like reading history books, but the Midnight Ride is a little bit more palatable. Well, of course, and Paul Runyon loves to do history lessons, so that's one of my and, and talk about himself in the third. Yes, <laughs> of course. It's time for another Runyon history lesson. You know, and, and everybody who has even a cursory understanding of history knows about the name of our podcast, The Midnight Ride. I mean, yes, we we released it, you know, uh, at midnight tonight, but um, that's not why it's called The Midnight Ride. It, it has to do with a very special part of our history that I think we were all taught as young children about Paul Revere. But but let's get into it. I, I turn it over to you, historian laureate uh, Paul Runyon. Thank you so much, Connor. So it's a, it's an honor for Paul Runyon to be here today. <laughs> <laughs> so that, let's, let's get into this les- these lessons. So essentially, the colonies, which I think we can sort of get, we can gloss over everything up until kind of the, the mid-1700s. But colonies controlled by the British, I think everybody knows that. But uh, for the most part, they were kind of left to be on their own for a few hundred years. So uh, until, say, 1765, the colonies were able to tax themselves. They decided what taxes they would have, who collected them, what they were for, etc. And did the revenue stay in the colonies? Yeah, the revenue stayed in the individual colonies for the most part. Now, in 1765, the British passed the Stamp Act, which this was kind of a big issue because the British had a war with France. They had a massive amount of debt. They had to raise money. And so what they did with the Stamp Act was they taxed a huge range of transactions in the colonies, which the colonists themselves saw as a big, massive infringement on their sovereignty, especially because for the most part, the colonists had to buy goods from the British. So not only did they have to buy the goods from the British, but now they had to pay taxes on them. So that was a a huge issue. And the colonists pushed back on it. It eventually got repealed. And by repealing those it actually emboldened the colonists to think that they could push back on other things. So that was kind of, that was an interesting piece of, of legislation. And then the, the British tried again through the Townsend Acts, which essentially set up a board of customs commissioners to stop smuggling and corruption among local officials in the colonies who were often in on illicit trade. 
And uh, the Americans struck back by organizing a boycott of British goods as a result of that, that were subject to taxation and began harassing the customs commissioners. So that raised things and, and inflamed tensions even more. And the British sent troops to occupy Boston, which only deepened the ill, the, the Ill feeling. And that ultimately led to the Boston Massacre in March 1770. Do you remember, do you remember learning about the Boston Massacre in, in school, Connor? Yes. Can I quiz you? What do you remember about it? Let's see, do you, how, how much do you know? Well, my, <laughs> now you're going to embarrass me on, on uh, well, um, I, I remember um, British troops and there were, maybe I'm getting this mixed up with, with Lexington and Concord, but I, I believe that there were, you know, armed militia or folks and there was kind of a, a showdown where, and so there was somebody fired into the crowd. You're, you're getting things a little mixed up there, Connor. I'll, I'll put you in. Okay. Okay. I'll put you in there with, with most Americans that, that have. Give me a refresher. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Okay. Okay. So uh, I'm not trying to show you up, Connor, but, but this, the point I'm making is we've, we've got to get back to our roots here and understand these things. So. Yeah, absolutely. So the, essentially the British, they were occupying Boston and Boston residents didn't like it. And there was a disagreement between a, an apprentice wig maker and a Boston soldier. And it led to a crowd of 200 colonists surrounding seven British troops. And the Americans started taunting the British, throwing things at them. The soldiers lost their cool and they fired into the crowd. So, but uh, yeah, that's what I remember about. Yeah. So there was no militia. There was, yeah, there was no militia. There was no militia. I think there was one British soldier or, you know, somebody kind of thought they saw, I mean, they're getting pelted with stuff and they kind of thought they saw something or, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of things like this that, you know, wars can start this way where somebody flinches or one wrong move. You don't know what can happen and things can, things can kind of explode from there. So they there were definitely differing accounts, but I, I think somebody yelled fire or something. They fired into the crowd. There were three, three men were killed, including an African-American sailor named Crispus Attic, Attics, which you, you people have probably heard that name before. And, and the massacre from then on became useful propaganda. And Paul Revere uh, distributed an engraving that actually misleadingly depicted the British as the aggressors. It wasn't necessarily the, you know, I wouldn't say the British were the aggressors. They should never have fired into the crowd. I'm not defending the British, but they were being taunted by 200 people. So that's when, you know, probably some of those British soldiers got a little bit worried there and, and could have, could have started this whole thing. Yeah, there was, there's no doubt that the colonists were instigating and throwing things at them and and whatnot. But Paul Revere, you know, was was one of many uh, Americans who, or, or British colonists, American colonists who did not want to be living under the crown any longer. And there were many folks like Samuel Adams and Benjamin Franklin, people like that, who were writing about, you know, life under the oppression of the crown, and around this time, and making the case for, you know, not necessarily revolution, but, but basically, you know, saying, hey, we need to get out from under this because we're not really being 
we don't have rights here. Exactly, exactly. And the British kept getting way out ahead of their skis. They kept pushing things more, and that led to the Boston Tea Party. They, they did this, this uh, the Tea Act that they passed, and they did it because the British East India Company, which probably many people have heard of, it's where the British would go, you know, throughout the empire, they would go get the spices for the teas from India, and then they would sell it around the world. So they, they required that the Americans buy tea from the British East India Company. And then they developed this Tea Act, which was a tax on tea. So the Americans were very upset because they didn't want the British telling them that they had to buy their tea only and then put a tax on it on top of them. The, Brit- the Americans wanted to be able to trade with, with anybody they wanted. And essentially some... Uh, this group called the Sons of Liberty, which uh, they were disguised as Mohawk Indians. And they boarded three ships in Boston Harbor, destroyed more than 92,000 pounds of British tea by dumping it into the harbor. And they wanted, of course, the British wanted to call them vandals, but but the, the Sons of Liberty wanted to make it very clear that they were just rebels. They didn't harm any of the crew. They didn't damage ships. All they did was throw the tea overboard and left. That might have been a great name for a podcast, The Sons of Liberty. <laughs> I know, seriously. <laughs> um, although it seems like calling yourself any like Sons of Liberty or anything like that will get you on a FBI watch list these days, probably. Yeah, definitely will. And actually, that, that name is, is taken. Before the uh, Tea Party and the Massacre, you know, you talked about the Stamp Act and the, and the Townshend Act. You know, I want to read, you know, Samuel Adams, something that he wrote. And this was... Well, actually, this was before the Tea Party, but this this happened uh, after the massacre in uh, basically a town meeting. Uh, Samuel Adams wrote this called The Rights of Colonists as Men. Among the natural rights of the colonists are these. First, a right to life. Second, to liberty. Thirdly, to property, together with the right to support and defend them in the best manner they can. All men have a right to remain in a natural state of nature as long as they please, and in case of intolerable oppression, civil or religious, to leave the society they belong to and enter into another. This is not, the rights of colonists as men is not one of our founding documents, but this is one of our founding fathers, Samuel Adams. And uh, some of us later on today may tip one back, uh, you know, in honor of Sam Adams. But here's a guy saying, listen, we have a right to li- you know life, liberty, and property, and if you trample on that, we're, we can leave and form our own thing. That was in 1772 after the Boston Massacre. It's great to see how some of these documents and these thoughts led up to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I mean, people were really getting ideas together about how they wanted this new country to come unfold, to unfold. It wasn't just like all of a sudden, let's get together and write this document. People like Sam Adams were thinking about this for years and how, how to structure this. And I'm glad you brought that up because it was interesting. Things got even crazier when the British then decided to do the quartering act, which allowed British military officials to demand accommodations for their troops in unoccupied buildings and towns rather than stay out in the in the countryside. It didn't force colonists to board troops, but they had to pay for the expense of housing and feeding the soldiers, and it became a big grievance. And that actually led to the famous Lexington and Concord 
in April 1775. So British General Thomas Gage led a force of British soldiers from Boston to Lexington, where he planned to capture Sam Adams and John Hancock, and then head to Concord and seize their gunpowder. But American spies got wind of the plan with the help of such riders as Paul Revere, which where he had the famous midnight ride spreading word to the colonists uh, in the middle of the night to be ready for the British, where he kept yelling, the British are coming, the British are coming, which is how we got to name this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Super interesting. I mean, now I don't know if anybody knew where the midnight ride came from that listens, but that is where it came from. So Paul Revere got everybody ready. And on the Lexington Common, British forces were confronted by 77 American militiamen, and they began shooting at each other. Seven Americans died, but other militiamen managed to stop the British at Concord, and they retreated back to Boston. The British lost 73 people, another 174 wounded, 26 missing in action. And the bloody encounter proved to be proved to the British the colonists were fearsome, foes who had to be taken seriously, and it was the start of the Revolutionary War. And that is how that's how the Midnight Ride came to be. Revere sounding the alarm was so critical to that victory and to that event. And that's kind of what we're trying to do right now is, is, you know, that's with this podcast is sound the alarm about some of the insidious threats and the forces. You know, the United States of America does have some serious external enemies in People's Republic of China, obviously Russia right now, and we should probably not overlook North Korea and Iran as countries who with nuclear weapons could be a could pose a threat, maybe not to the republic, but just to, to killing a lot of Americans. There are external threats, but America, if she is to die, she will die from internal disease. You know, we are we are our own, we can be we are our own worst enemy. We are. And we have cancers inside our body right now. We have Marxists, we have nihilists, we have people. We're sort of like that, you know, I, I, I grew up <laughs> a little bit different from, from some, but we're sort of like the, uh, I, there were a couple times in my childhood where I went to a friend's house and the friend was like, you know, this really wealthy friend. And it's like, wow, you've got a swimming pool. Wow, you've got your own, you've got this, you've got that man, your life, you've got it great. This is amazing. And it's like, yeah, but my dad's the Nazi. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't let me do anything. You know, it, I'm, you know, basically the kid's miserable and thinks that his life sucks. And everybody else is looking at him going, I would love to have what you have, you know? And that's America. We have a lot of people here who have been spoiled and coddled. And so now we're, we're, we're fighting over pronouns. We're fighting over, you know, these absurd things when we have this document, the Constitution, that grants us all of these liberties and freedoms, we have this economy, we have all these things, and yet we fight amongst ourselves, it's embarrassing, but it is a real threat, and that's why we have the midnight ride, is to sound the alarm, much like Paul Revere 247 years ago. I mean, the other issue I see is that we have such a, a government that is so large and so big with a huge civil service that is unionized, that can't, that, you know, is in many cases has, 
has not been held accountable. And it's, it's, so we've got these huge taxes that everybody pays now. I mean, back then, people were upset to be taxed by the British because I don't think they saw what they were getting for this. They were just sending tax to the British. Now taxes are going to the government. You know, I think it's being spent in a bad way and, and their people aren't necessarily getting a return on that. And so we've got a, we've got a whole bunch of, of issues here that, you know, we've got to be a lean, lean country with a really effective government if we want to take on these external threats. We can't sort of fail from our own size that just that causes us to keel over. The government can't be so big that it stops everything else. That's such an excellent point, Paul. I mean, if you look at our government, it's bloated nature. It's so unhealthy. It's so morbidly obese. It's it's very much sort of like a a metaphor for, you know, how America is right now. You've got all these super fat people, you know, walking around. They have other people doing things for them. Uh, they don't know how to do anything with their hands. I mean, you know, these people that we're talking about, the first Americans, and we celebrate the fruits of their victories and their fight 246 years later today. But those people knew how to take care of themselves. They were self-sustaining people. And, you know, Americans today, many of them, certainly not you or I or any of our listeners, but many Americans think that the government is supposed to take care of them. You know, the government in these people's eyes, their main job was to get the hell out of my way, protect me from external threats and, and let me live my life. And I think the government is so bloated now. You know, it's, it's much like your 280 pound neighbor who can't go out and, and, you know, even walk a couple of miles. The government is so bloated, it can't do very much very well. We saw that with the COVID, you know, epidemic. We see that with these government-run public schools. I mean, big government sucks. And I don't know, you know, we talked about, you know, we're, we're 127 days away from the midterms. And then hopefully, you know, just a couple years away from a, a DeSantis administration. But when the Republicans, if and when they ever get power again, they typically don't reduce the size of government, if we're being honest. The government just keeps growing, and that will be our undoing. I know. It's, it is. It's very hard. Let me read some excerpts here of the Declaration of Independence, which I'm sure most of us haven't heard since maybe middle school or something of that nature. But, but it's, there's some really interesting writing here, and I think if we could just focus on getting back to this, it would be really helpful. And just to be clear, Paul, the Declaration of Independence was issued, right, on July 4th, 1776, right? Yes. So this is today, the 246th anniversary. This is what we're celebrating, right? It's not the victory over the British, you know, battle. No, it's this document. We're celebrating this document. It was a unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America uh, in Congress, July 4th, 1776, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent Respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, prudence, indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Mankind are more disposed to suffer than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. That is so true. The fact that these patriots said enough is enough it was not a common thing uh, throughout. I mean, you're talking about in 1776, the British Empire being the strongest, you know, country on earth. And throughout history, you see people just suffering and you see it in places like Venezuela, Cuba, China, you know, people just saying, well, uh, we're just going to put up with it. But I think also, too, when you said that all men are created equal, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and to secure these rights, whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it's our right to alter or abolish it. And that's in our DNA. And I think that's what makes a lot of the people in the capital, in the Beltway, and some of the billionaire, you know, our oligarchs, a little bit worried is that this document exists and <laughs> Paul and Connor are, and people like us are, are reminding and educating their children that, listen, if the government, you know, it's the consent of the governed, right? And if the government doesn't give you the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we can say, I'm out and, and form our own thing. Our, I know you probably want to keep going on this. Well, yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting, too, is that it says the pursuit of happiness. It doesn't say that you have a right to happiness. You have a right to pursue it. So that doesn't mean that it's government's job to make you happy. It means that government gives you the tools to pursue your happiness, which is essentially freedom. And that's what I find is interesting. And, and at, just to end this preamble here is where they, they kind of sum up. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. So essentially what they're saying is that it's nothing to be taken lightly doing this, but when there's, you know, essentially you're living under a despot, it's your right to throw off the government because they're violating your unalienable rights. That's absolutely true. And that document, you know, just, we always hear about, put your John Hancock on that one. John Hancock was the big signature there. Um, but there were delegates or there were people from all 13 states that signed that document, including such luminaries as Samuel Adams, 
John Adams, Samuel Chase, Caesar Rodney, Stephen Hopkins, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Harrison, you know, all of these people that we know, uh, William Hooper, so Robert Morris, a lot of univers- Benjamin Franklin universities and other buildings have been named, and there's been monuments to many of these uh, patriots. But people from all 13 states signed this, and we were officially, in our own minds at least, a country from the, the signing of this document on forward. And this this did send reverberations around the world because the British were then at war trying to preserve this not-so-small group of colonies, and uh, ultimately, freedom and liberty won out. They certainly did. And let's just remember that as as we vote and we have the midterms 120 days away, let's just try to find candidates that support government that wants to support our unalienable rights. I mean, candidates that aren't about the huge government, but they're about supporting the rights, not giving us things, not sort of giving us money, giving us benefits. That's not what it's about. It's about protecting our right to freedom, our right to pursue the life that we want to pursue. And there are a lot of um, people in Congress and leaders around the country that understand this, that the pursuit of happiness, I think a good example of this might be, you know, somebody going to try to get a permit to start a business. Maybe they want to start a business at a, a fair or a carnival and they want to have a cotton candy stand. And they're told, well, in order to do that, you need these seven permits. You know, they can sit there and explain that, well, it's for the safety of this and that. But really what it is, is money is changing hands and it's going, it's, it's this behemoth that is just growing upon itself. It needs that money to survive. And so the person is deterred from starting a business their ability to have the pursuit of happiness and to have their own property, their own thing, is being crushed by big government and, and government regulation. It's run amok. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Paul, is, is we, we need to – the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, the spirit of those was liberty. It was not government. They were fighting and rebelling against oppression and oppressive government. And we've started to create it here, and we we absolutely, in 127 days at the midterms, and then another 730 days later, uh, with another congressional election and, and electing a new president, we need to get back to smaller government and more liberty. Final thoughts on this segment? Well, yes. As I would just like to say, I have a good idea. As as people go off to watch fireworks or light off their own fireworks made in China. Why don't we make fireworks in the U.S. again? How about that? I think that's a, that's a, a, a great start. <laughs> How much money gets sent to China by through July Fourth fireworks? That'd be my my question of the day. Well, whenever I buy a U.S. flag, I make sure that it's made in the U.S. Exactly. We all try. I mean, I know that I try. I mean, I certainly buy a lot of things that are made in China. If you have kids and you buy toys, you're you're buying things that are made in China, but we all try not to buy a lot of things. It's it's harder than normal, and it's a little bit more expensive. But I do try to buy anywhere other than China, but certainly things that are made in the U.S. whenever possible. 
Well, when we come back, we've got another, uh, I think our final SCOTUS segment for a while. The Supreme Court makes another ruling that is along the lines of what we're talking about that, that I think is good news for liberty. And it's being misinterpreted, of course, by the leftist media. We'll, we'll discuss that when we come back on the Midnight Ride. Paul, sometimes I can't tell which fire burns the brightest in terms of leftist rage. Is it the transgender activists or the climate change activists? I think it's the latter. And, you know, this past week we had another Supreme Court case, a Supreme Court ruling that dealt with the climate issue and infuriated and enraged people on the left to no end. Now, this case, we're going to talk about it, has far-reaching implications well beyond climate. And it sort of addresses the ruling by executive fiat that we've seen a lot under the, the Joe Biden administration. What was the name of this case? This case, uh, I believe, I mean, I, I don't exactly, I'm trying to remember the name of it myself. I think it was something. It was West Virginia, I think. Wasn't it West Virginia versus the EPA? Okay, so the, the, the case in question um, had to do with the Clean Air Act. And I love this binary that the Democrats and the lefts put out. And by the way, you know, as a card-carrying, ultra-maga, right-wing nut job, am also for the environment, strangely. You know, they, they kind of say, well, if you're, ag you're against the Clean Air Act, you want, I guess you want to pollute the air and pollute our rivers and, and pollute our water. No, no, believe it or not, leftists, there are a lot of people on the other side of the political aisle that do want clean air and clean water for their families to drink. It's, it's sort of like, you know, people on the right that think that Democrats don't love their children. No, we, we got to get to a place where we don't just go high and right and, and label these people as people who want to destroy the environment. That's not the case. It, you're totally right. And what happened with this act and, and what brought out this lawsuit is that, so Congress passed the Clean Air Act in 1963. It was done essentially to reduce air pollution. I mean, you had huge smog in places like Los Angeles. Cars were just using like fully leaded gasoline and it was creating all these health problems, asthma, coughing, the dirty air. Uh, people might remember from the 70s, like the, the pictures of the yellow air and all that smog that was everywhere. So the Clean Air Act was passed to combat that so that people could breathe the air. And uh, it was amended a few times by Congress. Uh, the latest was in the 90s where it started, where it talked about acid rain and uh, ozone layer de depletion, um, other toxic pollutants and other areas that were that there still were not any regulation standards. And it, it was very specific around individual factories and cars and what they were emitting to make the air clean. And we can all acknowledge, and we can and should all acknowledge that automobiles, power plants, things that we use in our daily lives do cause pollution. They do kill wildlife. I mean, you know, the, the, look at these wind farms. They kill thousands upon thousands of birds. I mean, the things that we do just to keep the lights on in our homes and to drive to work every day do hurt the environment. I mean, we, 
we all acknowledge that, or at least we should. I think there's some some lunatics on the right that won't even acknowledge that. But we, the question is, how do we fix it? You know, and and so these laws were passed, and and I think the Supreme Court will say, if you want to do things and regulate things, it's got to be uh, the people's representatives that do it, right? Completely, uh, exactly. Something that Congress should do. So in 2009, when President Obama came in, they developed a new regulation uh, by the EPA, which was around cap and trade. And what that essentially means, it's a way for businesses to offset carbon emissions. Now, carbon emissions was never <laughs> in the clean was never in the Clean Air Act. It was never really thought of as a as an air pollutant. Um, and it's not an air pollutant. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's more of this, this, this sort of idea of like greenhouse gases, right. That we're, that we're heating up the earth. It's not pollution of the air, right? Yeah. They wanted to go to, uh, what they wanted to do was essentially go to encourage going to renewable energy, which is a nice goal. I mean, I like solar power. I think, uh, I love electric cars. I think all of that is great. And I, I see, I think I see that as something that can be very admirable. The problem is, is that the EPA used the Clean Air Act as their authority to regulate this when there was nothing in the Clean Air Act that addressed this. There was no regulation about, there was nothing about climate change that was in the Clean Air Act. There was nothing about renewable energy that was in the Clean Air Act. It was simply pollution and pollution that led to health problems. And that, that is where things got interesting. 1963, and then amended in 77 and 1990. Okay, so Republicans and Democrats in Congress, in order to protect the health of Americans from pollution, passed laws, so in other words, Americans had a say in this, to keep the air clean. Barack Obama, Mr. Cell Phone and a Pen, said global warming is a threat, and so his EPA made some changes that were not ruled upon by the people. Is that what the Supreme Court is saying? Exactly. And then West Virginia sued the EPA saying, you don't have this authority. And of course, because the EPA, West Virginia is a coal producing state and they, uh, the EPA is threatening to essentially destroy the entire coal industry in West Virginia because of this. And the state of West Virginia is saying, hey, 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 hold on a minute. We, we're complying with all the the Clean Air Act rules that you've done. We're not, you know, we've limited all the pollution going into the air. There's no health problems now. We're in compliance. And now all of a sudden the EPA has decided to arbitrarily say, wait, you're contributing to climate change. You've got to shut down. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this decision. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the state of West Virginia. And I don't know if other states signed on to that, but they ruled in favor of the, in favor six to three with Chief Justice Roberts not only siding with the conservative justices, but also writing for the majority. By the way, just as an aside, this whole docket, we've seen a lot of six to three cases. We've seen some five to four. I have noticed that the Republicans and the, and the hated Trump nominees have sided with the liberal justices a number of times, including last week, on the Biden uh, remain in Mexico policy, but the liberal justices never, ever side, almost almost never side with the conservatives. So, I mean, to me, it's like the, the originalists are interpreting the law 
while the the Democrats are, you know, the Democratic appointed justices are doing the bidding of the activist left. I digress, but I. Well, we'll get into that. Well, we can get into we'll get into that in a little bit because Kagan Sotomayor. Okay, yeah, because I I do see Roberts as kind of like the 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 hinge, right? He swings both ways, but we we have seen Gorsuch and Kavanaugh does too. Look, Kavanaugh swings sometimes too. I mean, and Gorsuch did too. You know, so the thing is, when you're an originalist, you you don't really care about about like what the actual policy is. It's like you could see climate change as being this awful thing that you have to stop. But if you're an originalist, it's like, that's not my job to regulate that. My job is to just look at the Constitution. And then if you look at, if you look at the sort of liberal dissents, that's always about how this is going to push healthcare, you know, women's healthcare back. And, and, you know, if you read sort of Kagan's dissent on this, she talks about one, this is limiting the, the government's ability to, to combat one of the, the greatest challenges of our time. But they don't even talk about, I mean, she's not referencing the Constitution. It's all like about, about activism. She said specifically, today the court strips the EPA of the power Congress gave it to respond to the most pressing environmental challenge of our time. What caught the EPA in, in the 1960s and even in 1990, they weren't thinking about climate change. So what Congress never gave it power to respond to the pressing environmental challenge of our time. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And the reality is, is that to them, it's all about the results. You know, if we can't get the results, I mean, after this ruling, this West Virginia versus EPA ruling, AOC was standing in front of the Capitol basically saying, you know, burn it down, pack the court, all this crap. How about you make your case to the American people and you pass a law? If you cannot do it, if the American, you know, we, we talk about the, the Declaration of Independence, 246 years young today, and the Constitution. Of the people, by the people, for the people. If the people don't agree with it, then it's not going to be a law, and you can't just regulate it with a pen. Joe Biden wants the electric grid to be completely renewables by 2035, so he makes these rules. And we've seen this using the Centers for Disease Control to try to have an, a moratorium on evictions. He has new, you know, repeatedly said, well, this may not stand up in the courts, but I'm going to do it now so that we can get our way for a temporary amount of time. This is the left's worldview. But let's go back to this ruling. And, and it's just like you said, Paul, that this isn't saying that it's wrong to regulate climate change. Roberts says, capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sens sensible solution to the crisis of the day, but it is not plausible that Congress gave EP the EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme. Gorsuch, when Congress seems slow to solve problems, it may be only natural that those in the executive branch might seek to take matters into their own hands, but the Congress does, the Constitution rather, but the Constitution does not authorize agencies to use pen and phone regulations as substitute for laws passed by the people's representatives. It's clear, guys, this is something that has to be legislated and not, you know, administratively done. And that could be anything, not just climate change. So I think I see this as having this case now lays the legal precedent for any future 
you know, cell phone and a pen type regulations for making sweeping changes to our country's policies. Well, they did. And it's actually a huge check on this huge administrative state that we have talked about in several episodes, because it's not just the EPA, it's tons of government agencies decide to be very, quote, liberal in the way they interpret laws passed by Congress. And agencies will will then say, like, assent. They, they decide to interpret things so broadly that they put these rules and regulations on Americans that have nothing to do with what the law was intended to do. And that gets us, it, when we were talking about the Declaration of Independence, I mean, that gets us to that situation where government then can become very oppressive and do things that the people didn't want in the first place. Just because you're president and you want doesn't mean you have the right to to interpret laws any way you want to get whatever policy you want. And the Supreme Court's job is not to regulate either. The Supreme Court's job is to hold the executive branch in check. And that's what they did. I think that CDC eviction moratorium is a great example of how you get tyranny from these sort of extra legislative, you know, an extrajudicial sort of policies. Um, because you had a lot of people who owned a, you know, a second home and they're trying to rent it out and they don't have, they don't have the means to pay that without the renters paying. And people are just like, Hey, you know, corn pops got my back. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay my rent. I mean, and tens of thousands of Americans were devastated by this policy. But you talked about something just now, I think is speaks to a broader problem that we have, especially with the political left, which is that people don't understand the roles of the three branches of government, right? I mean, the legislature, and that's, I think, Article One of the Constitution, that's like the first thing. Congress and the people's representatives have to pass the laws. And then you have the executive, which enforces the laws, but they can't make new laws. They got to have the Congress and then the Supreme Court, which is right now, to me, the most important check and balance to, the, to this whole thing. They don't understand it and they don't want to work within it. And I think the aftermath of this West Virginia EPA decision showed that. We talked about AOC and those saying, pack the court. Rather than pass laws that deal with climate change, let's pack the court so that we can get what we want if we still have the president. And I want to go to our tweet of the week. This is from Rick. That's, dictator. I mean, that's, dic- that's dictatorship. I mean, when you want to do that, that's, that's essentially, it's like my way or the highway. I don't care what the people think. I don't care how our government is set up. This is the right way to do things. And you scare people by saying there's a crisis, and then you essentially just, in a dictatorial way, have these edicts that that put your views on top of people no matter what. And that's a huge problem. We talked about that, too, a few episodes ago with the SEC and these administrative law judges. I mean, that's another one. It's like they forget the due process and the jury trial. Let's just have a government-appointed administrative law judge make a decision. And the courts are limiting that now too. So I'm excited about it. But but let's get to, to the tweet of the week because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, the Supreme Court, I, I think the Supreme Court though, as you point out, has done a lot in this past term to uphold the the Constitution and uphold our system of government. And we just hope that, you know, they don't get assassinated or Biden doesn't try to go nuclear and and pack the court and destroy this this institution, because the Congress seems broken. Clearly, we don't have a, a, a sentient person in the White House 
So the Supreme Court is like our last hope. But, but as we talked about, they don't get it, and they don't want to work within it. They want to change it. Here's our tweet of the week. It's from Representative Katie Porter, who represents California's— Oh, sh- she's a real doozy. <laughs> I th- yeah, I think she represents the 45th district in California, and, um, which I think is Orange County, maybe the Irvine area. This is her tweet from June 30th. The Supreme Court just struck a devastating blow to the EPA's authority to fight the climate crisis, but Representative Mike Levin and I refused to give up on our planet. We led a letter detailing executive actions the administration should take or should consider to protect families from pollution. And this letter is signed by Porter Levin... Nanette Diaz Baragan, Earl Blumenauer. There's others. Let's see. We got Mark Desaulnier, Steve Cohen, Rashida Talib, uh, Gerald Connolly, Mark Takano, Jared Huffman, Mark Pocano. So a lot of these um, Democrats, Jamie Raskin. This is the communist revolutionary wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah. So, So, you know, I'll translate. Hey, the Supreme Court just said that we can't rule by executive fiat, but Representative Mike Levine and I have proposed a number of other executive actions that the president should now take. They don't get it. They don't. How about taking these, you know, 14 representatives and putting them in a room with 14 Republicans and trying to hash something out that's legal? They don't want to do that. No, they don't. They don't at all. I mean, this is also like with Roe v. Wade, it was the same thing. You have Maxine Waters up there yelling, we don't care what they did. We'll defy them. I mean, what, <laughs> what, I mean, what is, the, what is this about? And this is why I think we're at such, you know, here on Independence Day, uh, 246th birthday of America, I think we're at such a, a possible tipping point because, you know, not enough Americans are listening to the Midnight Ride and understanding the Constitution. And a lot of these issues are very emotional issues. I mean, climate change, absolutely an emotional issue. Abortion. Guns. That's all. A lot of it is it's very emotional. And the problem is that the left plays to people's emotions to make them think that any action is necessary to achieve the goal, whether it's constitutional or not. And that's that's by any means necessary is their is their mantra by any means necessary. Exactly. And when you play to somebody's emotions by en- and say by any means necessary, we want to fix it. That that's that's very dangerous. That's like what happened in the Russian Revolution in 1917 and others. That I mean that that's it, it's very dangerous. Well, on that happy note, we we wanted to take this uh show to kind of do a little bit of a historical look back on our nation's birthday, but we did think that this case was so emblematic of some of the issues that we face. Glad the Supreme Court ruled the way it did, and I hope that Congress can can come to a, a middle ground. We'll, we'll try to let everybody get back to their barbecues, although I do think most of you are listening on a Tuesday or a Wednesday today. Paul, final thoughts as we close this one out? Yeah, just one final thought on this the Supreme Court in general. This was one of the most impactful Supreme Court sessions that I can remember, perhaps in my entire life. Um, seeing so many decisions on uh, Roe v. Wade, on the Second Amendment, and on the administrative state, I cannot remember anything close to this. And I just want to say that I'm so proud of the court to finally be looking at the Constitution. I'm so proud of the people that brought these cases 
to be seen and work their way up through the judicial system. This was our government at work. And for anybody that has a question about our broken democracy, look at the court and look at what they did. And this is, they, things are working exactly as they are supposed to. And I think we should all be super proud of how that went. Absolutely. And there is hope. If you live in a state that has uh, a governor or a legislature that's going outside the bounds, we still have the Constitution of the United States of America. And uh, and that's, that will always rule the day, um, let's hope. Because if it doesn't, as uh, Sam Adams and others said, we may, we may have to form something new. I would like to close by just saying that there's over one million men and women standing on that wall tonight on active duty in our armed forces, keeping those external enemies in check. And uh, for those that are deployed and those who are training every day at home, and a lot of you listeners have people in your families that either have done that or are doing that, our hats are off to them and we pray for their safety every day. We also want to thank you for listening to The Midnight Ride. We hope you've subscribed, given us a five-star rating. Uh, you can contact us at the Midnight Ride Podcast at gmail.com if you want to give us some comments to read on the air, or you can DM us. You can follow us on Twitter at Midnight Ride Pod. Thank you for listening. We have uh, another great show already lined up for next week. We can't wait to bring it to you, but celebrate our birthday today and this week and never lose your pride in being an American. It's the greatest country in the history of this planet. So for Paul, I'm Connor. Thank you for listening. Happy birthday, America. We'll see you next week on the Midnight Ride Podcast.